I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Welcome back to the show, the erudite soothsayer, Gary Burt. On this episode where we're reviewing some of the provocative stories from 2021 that are the signposts for change of what is to come in 2022 and beyond. But don't worry, this isn't all doom and gloom by any means, and it also isn't about crypto, NFTs, and AI either. In fact, we're not going to mention any of that. What we're going to do is bring together new stories, events, films, together with architecture and design that have influenced pop culture and highlight some great outcomes and some less successful events that we hope people learn from. I think one thing, one key thing that I learned from a lot of my work and envisioning is that whilst the future isn't foreseeable or predictable in detail, if you take a wide enough view of the changes, and I mean a cross-cultural, cross-domain view, you can start to identify shifts, issue and trends that are going to be important in the future. These don't just come from news stories. They can come from art, film, architecture, and a whole range of creative disciplines. So the key here is to take a broad, diverse view across disciplines so you can balance out the hyper-manipulation. So what we're looking for are those changes and shifts in a way that they impact people. Firstly, let's start with a video that The Economist put together based on the rise of China, the metaverse, hybrid working models, an African fashion boom, and the space race. The metaverse is the convergence of many technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality and video, where users live within a digital universe, which is massively scaled and an interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an unlimited number of users with a unique sense of presence and with continuity of data, such as history, entitlements, objects, and identity. Rather than bow to the technology, ingenuity, and the art of the possible of what this could all mean, do you not think we're going too far, too quickly, with technological advancement? And maybe it's time just to slow things down a little bit on that front. Don't we have more pressing problems to focus and solve in the world than thinking technology is always the answer? It's not. So things like fixing the humanity, environmental, economical and political and sociocultural problems first is an argument that really struggles to see the purpose and benefit of this to humanity with the intent of what it is trying to achieve. How is it making people better? How is it helping society progress positively? Is the intent to replace people eventually? Is it doing things that people can't do where there is a clear value add and need? Surely all the creative power and resource that we have in the world needs to be proportionally dispersed into other things rather than purely fueling and advancing technology. Secondly, the the recycling of fashion, I think, is a great step forward by making 
clothing from used materials such as plastic, bottles, nylon, polyester, and old clothing, which will influence clothing companies to hopefully practice sustainable uh, production more. And a friend of mine, Jonathan Burns, who is a young entrepreneur for a fashion label based in the UK um, that delivers recyclable clothing to, to its customers every month, to their doorstep every month, he shared a fascinating uh, data point, and I've mentioned this in other podcasts that we've done, Gary, is the fashion industry produces more carbon emissions than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. And 20% of global wastewater comes from textile production, and more than three-fifths of clothing ends up in incinerators or landfills within a year of being produced. And so it's great to see movements like this where we're taking a moral standpoint by being empathetic and having a social conscience about what businesses do and how um, deeply committed they are to making a positive difference to the planet and people's lives by looking at ways of recyclable and sustainable fashion. The other point, the perceived successes of Chinese communism and their political system over America's perceived failed democracy, the, Amer the American political system has failed to protect, protect its citizens by making them safe and prevent deaths during the pandemic is one example. Gary, as we've discussed previously on the Utopian Futures podcast, political systems like communism, socialism, capitalism and government and for government forms such as oligarchy and monarchy, democracy, republic, and anarchy have been proven time, time again to be unworkable um, overall. And politic politics, as we know it, is surely over. And what needs to happen is defining a society that's based on fairness, equality, that's open to everyone and led by people-led and socially conscious, um, skilled people who can lead and innovate in modern political, economic, sociocultural policymaking. What we're doing is we are looking to build a world that very few people will control, where the assets to create those are going to be available to those who already hold a lot of power in terms of owning that infrastructure. So we're going to be creating a world where people are buying virtual shoes in a world where people don't have shoes, where we create virtual food in a world where we have people hungry and we create virtual mansions in a place, in a real world where we have homelessness. So I, I think the, the irony of this is, is not lost, but I think there's something that we need to look deeper. And this is what we've talked about many times on, the, on, the, yeah, on these episodes, which is about why, for whom, what is the benefit? Yeah. And you know, we're, we're both living in, you know, we've both been successful to, from technology, but I can't help look at this and think, I couldn't think of a better way for a few people to get incredibly rich whilst ignoring the plight of a huge number of others, whilst promising a middle group, you know, huge success. But I, I think at the moment, if, you know, does the, me does the metaverse have a role if, if it's going to make money for people, if it stands a chance of making money, you're not going to escape it. I just wish we'd see some balance and start to be really harsh about asking us the question, why? If you want to live in that world, then why? Then, then you know, you, you live in a world where you start to bring this together. But what is that? What is that world? That world is, is what a guy sat at home in a little room staring at even bigger screens. 
You know, this is this is not what humans were designed for. We were designed to experience physical things. And I think there's a real, um, you know, physiological thing here, which is our bodies are meant to be physically used. We're meant to experience physically. We're meant to experience the environment. We're meant to experience joy, pain. We're meant to experience love. And, you know, what, one of the things we know is I can go on a virtual bike i could go on a virtual run you know where where i'm not doing anything and the reaction of my body is that i become less well so if i wanted to live in this world the the logical conclusion of this i would live in a world that was technologically maximized to allow me to to be enveloped embraced and immersed in this environment but what would happen to me physically well the reality is i wouldn't be going out so I become hypersensitive to a whole range of things. I wouldn't be moving my body, so it would start to atrophy. So, the, and and this is this is assuming that it's it's it has a, a, a net positive in terms of my mental health. Surely the last year and isolation has shown that this is the opposite. Yeah, you know we know that virtual relationships and isolation is bad, not for society just society but actually at a human level as well so does it have a future perhaps but it should be within the context of what it means to be human um you know that's i'm i I can see i can see some benefits of it i can see you know if we're talking about you know making um you know teams meetings better making zoom more immersive that's one thing but that's that's not where that's not what we mean that's certainly not what a lot of the leading uh, creators mean when they talk about the metaverse. What they're talking about, and let's be absolutely brutal about this, is a uh, an economic environment. It, it's that's what's the core driver is. And for me, I think that as soon as you put the human lens on that, it starts to expose the problems really, really big. My son, like many others, play the Xbox, and him and his friends believe that if they're able to do trickery. Um, by playing FIFA as an example, that they can actually do that themselves. You know, like these fantastic overhead kicks, being able to score goals in the the top right-hand corner from 50 yards out in an environment. They translate that to real life, that they claim that they can do that. But where physically, they can't do it at all. They can't even play football properly, you know? So it's that... Distortion of of reality, which the edges are no longer the boundaries between physical and virtual life. And it becomes a belief system. They actually believe that's a skill. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you another example. So, um, you know, we've got teenage sons, the same age, you know, same, same machines, (laughs) but you know, the kids (laughs) don't know each other, but, um, you know, there's only Xbox and have this, you know, this, there's suddenly this loud expletive and they're followed by, referee <laughs> come on yeah and i'm just thinking you're like son it's it's an algorithm yeah. yeah and and actually you know you and i know this a bit deeper that algorithm is is really tuned yeah is it delivering the most factually correct um decision or are actually the coders being really careful and putting in controversial decisions? Because yeah. you know, we know you could you could do this in the computer. You're programming where the kit will go. It can instantly calculate whether that was in or out. But maybe they've just been that little bit smarter, you know, and they're yeah. just they're putting those tricks in. So yeah, you thought it was in. And it may have been, but the referee's gonna call it out. But this is just another, you know, it's an algorithm. Yeah. And I think what the shift has been 
you know that you know uh, Gary and Roy are old enough and cynical enough to be able to step back and look at this and go, "Son, you're you're playing the game, but the game is playing you." And I don't know what you know. <laughs> certainly to the teenagers, that 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 angle of being played is just missed. You know, whereas we're criticising, um, you know, social media for this, we need to look deeper into a whole range of games which are using you know the very best psychological techniques to drive engagement. It isn't just making um, Forza, you know, more accurate. Yeah. It's also creating, you know, friction by design into the games to be able to, you know, stoke those emotions. You know, what we have is super smart uh, cognitive researchers yeah. helping game designers, putting a load of um, um, uh, behavioral characteristics to drive engagement. You know, it's it's happening in social media, as we know, the, the leaking of the... Um, the information this year about Facebook and Instagram, WhatsApp, you know, it's exactly the same as going into yeah. the games. This is their, their attractiveness, their um, addiction is a hundred percent by design. Anyway, um, let's, let's move on to fashion. Cause I'm, I'm actually, I, you know, we, we we're talking about, this is not going to be a, a tech bashing. It's not going to be all negative. I think this is a huge thing. So, you know, the negative thing, fast fashion is 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 incredibly bad you know the idea and we see it you know it, you know i'm in the uk so we see this of and i'll give you a really good niche example but one that is absolutely um characterizes this which is oh my god kate middleton princess kate has has worn the same dress twice oh my god um and you know you see that as like kate oh she's like no she's she's so like the rest of us what wearing things more than once, really? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm too old to really care. But you know, I'm wearing it to falls apart. Wearing it once, if you see me, you're likely to see me wearing a very similar set of clothing. Most of the time, you're going to see me, you know. But I think, you know, flipping that to the positive, I think there's two things we can take out of this. Um, one is that fast fashion is being called to account, which is way, way overdue, and. And it, it isn't just in the manufacture, it's just in the concept. Um, I think the other thing, which is, which is the, the huge positive, is the focus on uh, recyclable um, clothing, the focus on clothing with an ecosystem. So not only are we having this increasing ecosystem of clothes being um, sold and resold and hired, um, but also the, the very real, um, hugely positive of you know uh, recycling um ocean plastic and turn this into clothing and you know nothing but congratulations to the companies that are standing up and doing this because they are absolutely showing that it can be done and not i think you know we talk about the shifts one of the shifts will be this is going to become an expectation it will start with the higher end consumers you know we're seeing it now with companies like patagonia arcteryx uh, rab certainly in the out, outdoor um, clothing where they're, they're, they're leading on that recycling, I think this is going to increase and become a norm. And, and manufacturers, certainly in the upper and mid markets, are going to be really challenged if they don't have a credible story here. And, and for me, that's, that's, that's a huge positive because it will drive behavioral shifts. What we've got is a, a lot of forces combining. And, to, uh, you know, the, the biggest downside of next year is this increasing tension with China, um, you know, economically, uh, politically, militarily. Um, 
And I think, you know, you've seen, we're in the position where China clearly has its, has its own agenda. It has its own philosophy of how it wants to behave. You know, I, I have my own personal views about their, their economy and their society. And I'm, I'm certainly um, not a, f- a fan by any stretch of a lot of the things they're doing. But I think also you have to balance that with understanding, you know, about Chinese history and Chinese culture to understand why they believe that's right. Because it is a completely different mindset to the one we have. Um, I think that the, the challenge the challenge comes in when we start to see these, these um, philosophies um, um, challenging each other. I think where, where the difficulty is going to come, and, and this actually... I think will relate to a thing that we are going to come back to again and again is around resources, consumerism, and access to access to raw materials. So one of the things we've we've seen not this year but over many years now is China's increasing um, investment overseas to secure um, resources, not just um, metals but also a huge range of um, uh, minerals. You know, investment in um, Australia to secure um, uh, energy, particularly coal, investment in Africa to su- secure resources. So to, I think one of the things we need to be really careful of is about seeing this as a, as a Chinese versus American thing. It's, it's far more complex because it's, it actually spans American influence in a huge range of company, uh, countries and cultures and Chinese investment in a huge, rate, huge range of areas. So I the, the, you know, the future, no simple, no simple answers. I think hopefully we will see more collaboration between them and perhaps, and this is, this is going to be really hard to, to take for a lot of people, a, a position where we see a level of, I don't like it. I realize I'm limited to what I can do about it. So I need to come to terms with accepting that that's not something that I can change. I know that's a that's not a great thing to say, but I think that the idea of um, you know we go back maybe twenty years, the idea that America says something and you know any country will will take note of that that's that's clearly not the case with China. So I think you know one of the things we need to do is look for how are we going to find that harmonisation that we can at least find and seek out a greater level of stability. But it's it's going to be a, a rough bumpy ride. And, um, you know, there's so many trigger points, particularly militarily, that are going to become a challenge. But, you know, the harsh reality, the, 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 two, the two economies are incredibly closely linked. You know, America is, is fueled by Chinese uh, production. There's a huge amount of Chinese um, um, debt. So, so, sorry, China holds a huge amount of um, American debt. So they are very, the two countries are incredibly co- closely linked. But I think maybe, you know, one of the changes is we need to see a level of um, not necessarily respect, but we need to dial down that posturing at the top level. It's not going to help anyone. We, we're going to have to find a, a way that we can agree, perhaps to, to disagree, but do that in a way that allows each each of the other countries to to be able to do what they want and minimise the impact on the other. So. I wish I could be more articulate, but no simple. Answer. Yeah, no, that's a great concluding point. Then there needs to be a mutual respect and to appreciate the kind of difference and the differences, and just to find that mutual um, ground where they can collaborate and get the and work on the best, get the best out of one another to to, to contribute towards a a better world. Ultimately, number two in the big list is 
you know, we've got to a point where a lot of people are moving jobs, not necessarily to the jobs that they love, but certainly away from jobs that they really don't like. So what we're seeing and exploitative employers finding it impossible to hire, you know, those um, not even minimum wage, but, you know, the minimal wage, zero benefits, horrible, oppressive conditions are finding they can't hire people. Fantastic. Because that means that the people who would have normally worked in those jobs have found better opportunities. Now, you know, we're going to have um, economists point to the fact that this is going to rise prices. This is going to, sorry, increase prices. This is going to cause big disruption. It is temporary. It's what we have is we have, you know, flexibility in the labor market. And when we see that from the employer's point of view, it's always seen as a positive. But I think there's a huge positive in this um, for a whole range of reasons. Firstly, forcing, you know, forcing employers to raise the bar is is only a good thing. Um, you know, not the the US has been has been really slow in raising minimum wage. You know, that there's a lot of work showing that the that the US real term wage should be uh, minimum wage should be certainly double what it is and maybe more. And if we look at European countries, um and I don't just mean Norway, but also the UK, a lot of uh, central European countries, we've seen the use of the minimum wage actually have, you know, it's it's defied a lot of its critics and it's worked. What it's done is it's raised the standard of living. And what we find is people and businesses adapt. Some things do get more expensive, but we need to move away from a model that just relies on exploitation. Um, certainly there's some great stories in the US about um i'm trying to think of the name and we'll, we'll put it in the notes afterwards but employers in industries where they've gone you can't do this you can't make a burger for this the burger will become 20 dollars, and we've seen that absolutely shot through the reality and this is a super simple um uh narrative here is you treat people better you're going to get better outcomes in all ways so you start to help people with their lives. You become a better employer. You, you get more out of them. You, people do not give you their best when you're providing minimum wage, no sickness cover, no prospects. And the fact that we've got to the point where people are jumping away from those jobs and it forces those employers to review those um, situations is, is only a good thing. Um, just to balance that, the bad thing, I do not want to hear employers put things you know, on their on their social media, in their shop windows, you know, criticizing people who don't want to work in that environment. You know, we've seen a lot of those publicized and and thank good they are because it's really showing some of these poor employers for what they are. The reality is, you know, we we talked about this many times. People deserve better. If you if you can't run a job, if you can't make your business work on less than minimum wage, then the reality is your business needs to be reviewed because what's happening is your costs are being subsidized by the government. You know, I'm, it's, it's a good thing. Um, I think it will settle down. Um, hopefully we will see a norm where we start to see that the, some respect for people, particularly around healthcare in the US, start to become the norm. It isn't today. It needs to be. Uh, and I think final point, if you're in a well-paid job, if you have great health care, um, and if you have really good security, do not criticize those who want that as well. 
You know, it's it's amazing how many people you have in a a really privileged position going, well, I've worked for this, you know, they shouldn't have that. No, no, they should. They should. That should be open to everybody. Number three, best TV show, The Squid Game. Absolutely. South, South Korea knocked it out of the park with this one, giving Netflix a truly viral smash. This dystopian drama, and I'm not going to spoil the story because if you haven't seen it, go and see it, deals with a number of really nascent themes. Debt, gambling, gaming, greed, and with some really innovative twists. What's all, you know, rather than just talk about the Squid Game, I think there's some great things about actually looking at the story behind it. So originally originally written in 2009, the creator, writer, and director, and apologies if I get this pronunciation wrong, Hang Dong York was unable to find a production company until Netflix took an interest in 2019. Now, the reason it took an interest was because it wanted to have a drive to expand foreign content. What's another word we use for that? Diversity? Fantastic. We wouldn't have seen this if we weren't looking, and this is why it matters. Anyway, going back to this, Hang commented that when he wrote this, he wanted to write a story that was an allegory or a fable about modern capitalist society, something that depicts an extreme competition, somewhat like the extreme competition of life. But he wanted to use the kind of characters that he'd met in real life. So the core theme around corruption, gambling, gaming, combined with the dream of being able to get out of this situation, actually came from his own experiences after the financial crash in 2009. And the, the names of the key characters were based on his own childhood friends' names. Now, I've, I've talked about this and, you know, some, but some really quick facts as to how big this was. So it was released originally in September, September 17th, 21. As of November 21, it's Netflix most watched series, becoming the top viewed program in 94 countries with 142 million member households. It was the number one search for show on Google in 21, and, it, and Twitter said it was the most tweeted about TV show. And here's the staggering fact. So remember, you know, until a couple of years, a couple of years before it was commissioned, it was very, very difficult to see anything other, other than the English language films get this level of support. It cost 21.4 million, but it's generated value of over 900 million. million. And there's clearly a lot more to come with a second and third series, very, very likely. So very quick one to wrap this up. Um, well done to Hang Dong York for persistence and commitment, not only in telling a fantastic story, but, you know, echoing what you said, Roy, you know, um, be persistent, but also, you know, don't be afraid of committing to telling a fantastic story. Number four, our pick of the year, the 25th, 007, James Bond film, No Time to Die. The return of the silver-tongued and immaculately groomed British cavalier, with a difference, who navigates the world to slay the criminally vulgar terrorists. We find his magnetic and charismatic appeal because he does things most people can only dream of doing, and we gush over what he can do. The film is a signpost for the end of an era, and laying the seeds for what the future may be. We waited a while for it, but it indeed attempted to make it all-encompassing. Action, love, some fearless stunts, vintage classic epic Bond sets. Okay, pretty obvious twists. 
but a gracious swan song finale to the Daniel Craig 007 franchise. The question is, where next? Do you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that with the producers. Anyway, keeping positive, let's move on to the next one. Best environmental news of the year. The greening of Paris. What's, what's this? Right. If you want a big change, you're going to need a big vision. And Paris has done this. So building on an environmentally positive strategy for the 2024 Olympics, Paris has committed to developing itself as a sustainable green city. The pandemic showed us what a city with massively reduced traffic could be like. And Paris smashes this with a fantastic vision of a people first city. In the notes, we've um, linked to some of the artists' renditions of Paris. And Paris isn't alone, of course. Barcelona, Amsterdam, even London are becoming more and more people-centric. But the vision for Paris goes much further than this. You know, with the greening of large areas making it a truly um, people-centric place. So let's hope this becomes a challenge for other cities to pick up. Keeping it light and fun, but also informative, whilst allowing us to quickly cover money and finance. Best financial news. Lego, a better investment. Than gold. This story highlighted that holding Lego can produce a better return than gold. The only downside to this, I think, is that Lego is going to be increasingly bought by investors and kept in air-conditioned rooms, whereas it should be played with. But hell, it beats holding crypto. Anyway, in case you didn't know, there's a fantastic site called Brick Economy that not only shows the value of Lego sets, but tries to calculate future value. I'm hooked. Just one thing, why didn't I buy falling water in Lego when I first saw it? <laughs> Have you seen the price of this, Roy? Yeah. Oh, I remember yeah. looking at it going, oh, I, th- I think it was about £70, you know, probably $100. And it's now, you know, mint sets are going for like 400 plus, Crazy. 400, 500 pounds. I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, the, the, the thing is, even if you bought it, you go, do I leave it in the box and hold the value or do I build it? Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll treat myself to a, a good one that's already built or certainly out of the box and then I don't need to make that decision. So a bit more positivity. This is They Say It Couldn't Be Done Award. France bans plastic packaging for lots of fruit and veg. So well done again to France. In the UK, I despair when I see the amount of packaging and plastic, particularly on fruit and veg. We don't need it on every vegetable or fruit. It doesn't need a plastic wrapper. Nature wrapped much of this already. It's called skin or peel. So these soft, curvy yellow fruits called bananas, they've got a fantastic wrapper. They've also got a built-in indicator for the condition of fruit from underripe to rotten, allowing you to clearly determine the condition of the fruit. If you bury this wrapper, it will completely decompose and it doesn't leave micro banana in the ocean. Likewise, these tubers called potatoes are dug up from the soil. They've got a built-in protective skin. But hey, you can actually eat this and it gives you additional dietary benefits. It doesn't need plastic packaging. Yes, plastic packaging can extend a lifetime. But when we have daily deliveries of fruit and veg and every house has a fridge, we don't need this for the vast majority of fruit and veg. And don't believe that the elimination of plastic is not possible for fruit and veg. A visit to a farmer's market, a farm shop or a local greengrocer will show you that plastic is not required. So let's be clear. This is about convenience and profit. Convenience for us, but also for the supermarkets. But it isn't needed. Yeah, what is really disappointing is that some UK and American supermarkets did make some steps forward, but then reversed these by ripping out the the misting displays and replacing these with plastic. 
People, stick with it and make it work. Help educate your shoppers. Stand out by your convictions. Take a stand. And to show it can be done, I want to highlight and call out Keelan Farm Shop near Skipton in the UK, near where I live. This is a local store near me that shows how it can be done. Local produce where possible, minimal packaging, and a superb shopping experience. And in the notes, we've put the, um, the link so you can go and see that. Interestingly, Roy, I think this is an area where the US is actually doing pretty well in supporting farmers' markets, having more fruit and veg on display without excessive packaging. So let's move back to the real world with a couple of stories about design and architecture. First one, the Style Over Substance Award goes to the cold, cool pool. You may have seen this story, a rooftop pool connecting two buildings with a transparent acrylic pool at Embassy Gardens in London's incredibly hip Battersea area. It looks stunning, 25 metres long and 35 metres above the ground. It wasn't without controversy when it first opened because the pool was not accessible to those living in the development's mandatory affordable housing apartments. But now we've got a follow-up story that really brings a sense of karma to this. It transpires that it costs £450 a day to heat the pool and the pool is so cold you can only stay in for five to ten minutes. The message is simple. Stop making cool stuff for magazines. Design for people, not magazines. This pool is completely about image, not use. It costs £450 a day to heat. That's obscene. It's vanity architecture. Good design is not a pool that is unusable, inaccessible and unaffordable. Success would have been a pool that created a social space for everyone in the building to enjoy, was environmentally sustainable and could be used. So let's hope that other architects learn from this and their clients highlight the emperor's new clothes before they're made. So number nine, the what were you thinking award? (laughs) No, no, Roy, you've got to hear this one. This has got to go to the panel that thought that letting a nonagenarian billionaire (laughs) hobbyist architect design living accommodation for students would be a good idea. It wasn't. But I bet few considered how bad this could be. So what am I talking about? For those who've not heard, this is a famed Munger Hall at UCAL Santa Barbara. So what the challenge was here was they have a big shortage of student accommodation. So what's the solution to that? Well, have a billionaire design your building. This is a building designed to maximise the number of students per square foot in the building. The only problem is that the design has completely ignored the concept of humanity in the architecture. You need to see this building or the designs. Let's hope we never see it physically. No, win- no windows for many students. I think nine out of 10 don't have uh, access to natural light. Limited natural light in the spaces with the majority having no natural light in their living space. I don't need to go on. Munger claims that the concept is modelled on the iconic Unité Deputation Modernist Housing Project in Marseille, designed by Le Corbusier. Only it isn't. Unité Deputation, oh, excuse my French, you get the idea. Yeah. It was built in 52, almost 70 years ago. And this contribution, what the contribution to this design is to remove any connection to natural light in most rooms, replacing this with a Disney-style cruise virtual window. Let's be clear, this is a monitor on the wall. So in the last couple of years, we've seen students confined to their rooms to limit COVID spread with a corresponding rise in mental wellness issues. 
we know that natural space and natural light matters. We know about circadian rhythms. And we have a proposal that removes this and removes natural light. Even prisons have windows, Charlie. Well, at least in the UK. Even prisons have windows, Charlie. Well, at least in the UK they do. It's hard to know where to start because we need to look a bit deeper here. So let's begin with the basics. Buildings are for people. They are for people to fucking live in. Would you live in this, Charlie? I think not. So get out of your ivory tower and let an architect do their job. But it's worse than that. Because what we should be examining is why a hobbyist billionaire is even able to propose this. He's clearly a fantastic money manager because he has the money to be able to donate 200 million towards the cost of the 1.2 total. But this, can, this comes with a condition that his design is used. So a minor donor of the cost, you know, this is only about less than 20% of the total cost. So a minor donor gets to make fundamental design decisions that impact tens of thousands of lives. So this is the biggest failure. A donation is fine. But where is the concern for the welfare of the students? For me, this is not a failure of architecture. It's a failure of governance. So what we have here is a process that echoes some of the worst design processes in architecture. That we've, you know, it's these processes that have produced some of the most notable failings in buildings. The one that most comes to mind is the concept of tower blocks in the UK. Those 15 to 20 storey buildings for social housing. These were never buildings that were going to be lived in by those who designed them. There were designs, and this is probably controversial, for those who should be grateful of what was offered. The only problem is that they were built to a budget, meaning costs were cut, and the designs fit, failed to really appreciate how people actually lived and what their needs were. The point isn't that tower blocks are bad. Any visit to New York will show you there's a lot of very desirable high-rise buildings. But when we come to social housing, built to a budget with little or no appreciation of who will live in those, we have a recipe for failure. So whenever a building has an agenda of social engineering, we should be very, very careful. When the designer is a 90-year-old, I think 98-year-old, very soon, 97, 98-year-old, who proposes something he has never personally experienced, then alarm bell should ring. And you may have seen the windows in the Disney Cruise rooms, but I'm pretty confident you never stayed in these. I'm going to stop there because this really boils my blood. But if you want to read more, there's a brilliant article by Aaron Betsky in Architect. I'll get it right. Architect <laughs> magazine that I would highly recommend. I'll leave you with his final conclusion. Munger Hall is an abomination. I can only hope that other universities will continue to understand the need to invest in human-scaled, human-orientated, and community-building campuses that will help students learn to become part of an open, sustainable, and beautiful world. And that the discipline will learn from this case to do a better job defining and communicating the true worth of architecture. In this context, the purpose of architecture and design should be to influence how people feel positively, think and behave. A design and an expression that inspires a, a culture of creativity and allows people to interact in meaningful ways. Setting the right conditions, atmosphere and environment encourages creativity, art and beauty that people adapt and react to and reflect in their life and work. It affects how they view and interpret the world around them, their capacity and ability 
to live fulfilled and happy lives. Modernist architect, pioneer Le Corbusier, reinvented industrial housing into tenement buildings that mirrored ground-level streets and maximized space. And we've spoke about this in several other podcasts that we've done and, and articles that we've published, Gary. But also, in his movie, A Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick used these principles to create a futuristic world, a dystopian world, if you will, as did the designers of Park Hill, a public housing estate in Sheffield, England, which was inspired by the Corbusier streets in the sky. And the spirit this place evoked was captured sonically within some of the early recordings of the city's local synth pop band, the Human League. Similarly, with Home Crescent in Manchester and Quarry Hill Estate in Leeds. Did the architects place people at the heart of what they were doing? Was this designed for the people who lived there, or the local government council who wanted to solve a housing problem and put as many people as possible into that space that they had. Even at a basic level, anyone could spot some big issues. You did not have to be an architect to question this. Where was the community? Where was the social space? How would people feel living on the the sixth floor? What happened to gardens? How do people get to their homes? Would this encourage people to be more communal or to get home and stay home safely? Tenement housing blocks made many people feel like prisoners in their own homes. I I wonder how this architecture and design has impacted how people feel because it feels like the intent of its purpose is to punish and oppress just like you mentioned Gary Prisons, and taking a closer look to determine how this has affected people's mental well-being. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I mean, I, the last thing I saw, it was going ahead. I hope it isn't. One of the things we saw recently in the UK about four years ago was a tragic death of a large number of people in a tower block because of bad cladding. This was an architecture change, an architecture shift done to people for money that completely ignored the people living in there and completely ignored the needs. Now the public inquiry is still going on, but the point is the same. Architecture should be about people. It should not be about doing things to people. And when we start to see those, you know, we should be going, there are so many case studies about this going wrong. So when we start to see, you know, a building, which if you took off the label, you would look at it as a prison. Yeah. You know, we should be going, this is not what we are about. Yes, you have challenges with building. Yes, there are financial challenges. That doesn't give you one potential outcome. You need to look creatively about how you can solve this because this is not the right answer. Two final thoughts. One, this is going to rely on students wanting to live there. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure they will. And I'm not sure their families will want them to be in that space. Any, you know, I think the last couple of years that we talked about has seen a real increased awareness of mental health. I think any family who has an awareness of the building is going to go, you're not going there, son, daughter. You know, that's, that's a bad choice. The other one is I can't, escape the, I can't escape the thought that five years down the line, you know, we start to see Munger Hall. I was there for four years. This... We know that the environment changes people. You know, you could be, you could see UCAL 
essentially putting a building in place that is going to get delivered the world's biggest lawsuit for um, mental damage. Yeah. You know, I would, yeah. you know, I've got my virtual money out here, my metaverse money. If I was going to make a bet on the most likely outcome 10, 20 years down the line, if this gets built, it would be huge, huge lawsuits for mental damage that that building will do to people. I think this is, I think this, this humanity and design is, if you put this as a simple test, how the heck did this get through that first cut? Yeah, exactly. You know, who were the people in the room who went, hang on, um, uh, can, I, can I just ask guys, um, four and a half thousand people in a building, um, a couple of things. One, there's a really small number of exits. You know, when you think that yeah. even at a practical level, I, I will never stay in a hotel room that I couldn't put a chair through. Um, because, you know, I know that if there's a problem, you know, yes, I know, I know where the fire escape is. I, I, I cannot imagine what this, the risk this can do. And it's not about, you know, you go on a Disney boat and you go, yeah, but people love the Disney rooms. Well, yeah, they might for seven days because the bulk of their time is not going to be in that room. It's going to be in the social space that is the rest of the boat. These buildings don't have that. That social space is also artificially lit. Um, you know, on a Disney cruise, you're going on for seven days. This yeah. one, you're going to be in for years. I, I, I'm, I'm staggered. That's exactly right. got past that first cut. You would be hard-pressed to look at any architecture competition and find an analogy for this being anything other than a complete disaster. Yeah. You know, look at award-winning houses, award-winning architecture. It's about connection with the environment. It's about embracing space. It's about community. You know, every aspect that you would judge architectural, perhaps other than people per square foot, you know, this fails miserably, yeah. but it's still progressing. Okay, to close out then, Gary, highlighting a social movement trying to prevent ecological collapse. Social cultural movements encompass ideals and sensibilities as a reaction to the status quo, which has grown uniform and monotonous by influencing popular culture by driving progressive change in politics and society. And that's just what Extinction Rebellion are doing by taking a passionate and convicted stand against oppressive and ignorant forces without fear of retaliation to provoke action to change minds by using non-violent civil disobedience to provoke governments to take action for climate, biodiversity loss and to de-risk social and ecological collapse. And the BBC put together a good article about what Extinction Rebellion does. What their manifesto is geared towards is forcing the government to declare a climate emergency that the UK must legally commit to reducing carbon emissions to net zero by 2025. And thirdly, a citizens' assembly must be formed to oversee these changes. And they've gained significant traction to date they, I mean, they were founded, um, you know, three, four years ago in 2018. And by 2025, the group wants greenhouse emissions to reach net zero. And they have a, a community of almost half a million. As a result of their protests, 3,672 Extinction Rebellion demonstrators were arrested 
across three London protests. I think the stand that they're taking taking and their bravery and their conviction is really admirable. Um, and the traction that they've gained in a very short space of time is is impressive. I think so. I'm going to share a, a, a story. So um, I was due to go to a company event in a, in a big high-rise uh, building right on the top floor that was right in the middle of an extinction rebellion event. Yeah. So I knew it was going to be there, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'd, I'd seen the, this stuff in the press. It looks really agitated. It couldn't be further from the truth. Here's the reality. It's a, it isn't a load of um, hippies, um, outliers, and, you know, activists. It was a load of people. It was students. It was mums. It was people with postures. It was dads. It was young people. It was old people. That's the first one to dispel the fact that it's a group of activists. It isn't. It's a group of people who care. The second thing was that it, there was friction. It wasn't. It was incredibly friendly. And you go, well, yeah, what about the police? The police were talking, chatting, and getting on really well with the protesters. Yes, they were protesting. But here's what you, what you don't often see. Yeah. So what happens? They, they'd sit down in the road, they'd block it. The police would give them an amount of time, and then they would politely go up and say, could you, could you please move now, please? Essentially, they're sort of shortening this. But essentially, could you now move? It, that's what the response was. It wasn't riot shields. Yeah. It wasn't heavy-handed. It was, um, you know, can you, can you please move? And then, you know, no, okay, can you please move? Because this essentially, read out the legal text, this is an illegal activity and we will move you who don't move. So they go, I'm not going to move. And they go, okay, you know, essentially the third warning. If you don't move, we're going to move you. That will involve you being picked up. Um, essentially, <laughs> is there anything we need to know about? You know, is that, that this is what I saw, yeah? And they went, no, I, I, I'm not going to move. I'm protesting against this. And then what you would see is a large number of policemen, you know, maybe six, to pick them up. You know, pick up um, young people, old people, carefully. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, picking up people and dropping them. The, no, the reason they have so many people to pick them up is because people would typically go stiff, so it makes them hard to move. So they pick them up, they put them in the van, they'd, um, I, you know, they'd, they'd be ferrying them to the police station. But what was interesting is the fact that, you know, how different it is to how you often see this, see this portrayed. And I think, I, going back to your last point, I think you're absolutely right. It, it is bravery because what what really comes over to me is is there are a lot of people who must be really fearful of change of 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 actually doing things positively for the environment because that's not what i saw what i experienced was absolutely not what it's often protested i'm not saying it's not i'm not saying there aren't violent scuffles i'm not saying it doesn't cause disruption but it's interesting how it's reported um, versus what the reality is. Because in many cases, you have people sharing food, you have people having picnics, you have people helping each other out, they're sharing drinks. It was nothing like the coverage. And you, you, you say brave, and I wonder that, you know, with the increasing message around the criminalisation of, of protests, certainly we're seeing that more in the UK, the, the, this increasing narrative of change, whether the intention is to stop demonstrations stop protests because actually people do realize that change is possible and what they may think of niche oh i'd love this but it's not going to be possible 
maybe it, it is possible. And there's a, the, the worry facing a lot of organizations and government is actually there are far more people who support this than we think. So why highlight this? Because the core of the protester demands are clear actions to address environmental change. But the, the irony of this, of course, is what the protesters ask for is the, is the solution to the biggest challenges facing government. We look at them with different lenses, but they're actually the same thing. What does government care about? Energy security, energy independence, rising inequality, managing increasing environmental costs. We want the same things. And when I look at the challenge, I'm going to leave us with a really positive one. When I look at the challenge and the responses to this, I'm reminded of the quote from Mahatma Gandhi. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. Then you win. There's actually a real connection between loads of these things. Between China, between the greening, between Hugely. the yeah. eco-activity, between the recycling. And, and actually, I think, and the billionaires, and I think we do... What we are coming towards this is this crux, and I'm, I'm hoping it flips positively. I think what we've seen in 21 is a number of issues, as we said at the start, that appear incredibly diverse, that appear disconnected, but they're part of a much bigger macro agenda that I don't necessarily think a lot of people are making the connection around. And for me, there's actually a lot of positives. You know, the fact that we have cities committing to green, the fact that we have increasing um, focus on recycling, the fact that we have um, a challenge to exploitative employment through the great resignation, the fact that we're starting to see assets in, in toys, um, the, start, the, the fact that we are calling out, you know, um, architecture that is wrong for people. These are all connected. I think the Extinction Rebellion thing is a very visible one. But everything we've seen, for me, if I was looking at the macro change, it, the macro change here is about a world that is becoming much more unhappy. And, and uh, uh, that's actually a positive thing. So it's becoming yeah. more frustrated with the lack of change towards a people-centric uh, world. COVID has shown, you know, that it is possible. People have spent time in their gardens if they had them. They've spent more time in nature. They've reflected on things. And I think that the shift we will see in 22 is the realization and the collective push actually for hopefully some more fundamental change in how we live, how we work, and how we, you know, um, play a part in this world. So, I mean, for me, yeah, it's never going to be all positive, but I think the direction without a doubt isn't going in the right place. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.